Welcome back, U.S. history fans. So today we are going over World War II, and this is going to be much more of the kind of America, like what was happening back in America, and a little bit also of what was going on in Europe. And we're going to do a separate podcast talking primarily about the Pacific War and fighting against the Japanese and stuff. So don't worry, we're getting there. So just um, a little bit of the road from isolationism to war in America for World War II. So prior to World War II, the United States, we were in a Great Depression. Hopefully this comes as no surprise to any of you because you've been following along with podcasts and so forth and whatnot. Anyhow, so we're, we're in a Great Depression. And so we were not ready to go into war as the rest of Europe is kind of at war, getting ready for war at this point. So the United States, we had way too many domestic problems that we had to kind of get through, uh, basically. All right. Now, and... And as far as actually getting involved, we really didn't want to. Um, This next, I'm going to read you a little quote from uh, FDR um, from August of 1936. And here's his quote. I have seen war. I have seen war on land and sea. I have seen blood running from the wounded. I have seen men coughing their gassed lungs. I have seen the dead in the mud. I have seen cities destroyed. I have seen 200 limping, exhausted men come out of the line. The survivors of a regiment of 1,000 had went forward 48 hours before. I have seen children starving. I have seen the agony of mothers and wives. I hate war. And that's probably the best thing you can get out of that is he does not like war. So, And that kind of echoed the sentiments of the entire country at that time is no one wanted to go to war. People hated war. We saw how bad it was in World War I. We weren't ready for it. And we had way too many problems ourselves. So we tried to make sure that we weren't going to go to war by passing some kind of neutrality laws and neutrality acts and really favoring isolationism. So one of the, um, some of the first laws of being neutral and isolationist were passed in 1935, which banned the sale of weapons to nations that were fighting. So we didn't want to look like we were playing sides. It's like, oh, I'm selling weapons to this country, but not to that country. And that would make people angry. So then in 1936, we added on, we weren't allowed to give money to countries that were fighting. Well, for the exact same reason. All right. And then finally, um, we said, okay, we will kind of, and this is 1937, we need the money kind of, uh, we'll trade with nations that are fighting, but it has to be non-military goods, and if they want it, they got to come pick it up. Uh, we're not going to send our stuff over there and get it blown up kind of like the Lusitania. Um, so this was known as the Cash and Carry Act of, like, you want to buy stuff, you got to you know pick it up yourself. It's kind of like a pizza place that doesn't deliver. you got to come get it yourself. So, all right, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. America, we're staying out of it. Europe is getting ready to fight and is fighting and so forth. So... Three weeks after the invasion of Poland, um, and that caused Britain and France to declare war on Germany, FDR asked for relaxing those neutrality acts I just got done telling you about. So Congress said, all right, you can sell some stuff to France and Britain. Well, France and Britain don't exactly have a ton of money. And then after France fell in 1940, which wasn't too long after the fall of Poland, um, we started to aid Britain even more. And we had to find a kind of a way to do it without, you know, jacking up the price too much for them. So 
Anyhow, initially we gave them 50 of our old destroyers. Um, this is to Britain. And in exchange, we were allowed to build American bases in different British territory. So, okay, decent enough trade. Um, not everyone liked this. The America First Committee, which, judging by the name, America First, they care about America, they were isolationists and they tried to block this aid and further aid to Britain in general. So, undeterred by this, uh, FDR, in November of 1940, put in the Lend-Lease Act because Britain really didn't have any money to buy stuff. So he came up with this plan to loan them supplies and then they would give them back when they were done. And he was able to get people to kind of buy into this by using a simple analogy. If your neighbor's house is on fire, you don't sell them a hose to put it out. You lend it to them and then when they're done, they give it back. So that just kind of makes sense. Well, I mean, if you're loaning someone a tank and that tank gets blown up, what are they going to give back to you? Just a piece of metal? Um, so, yeah, there's kind of some holes in that analogy. But it worked because the Lend-Lease Act um, was passed March of 1941, and it authorized the president to aid any nation whose defense he believed was vital to America's security. So you don't exactly want to loan stuff to Germany because that's not going to help America's security. Um, but now, it was a good thing that this Lend-Lease Act passed because FDR was already sending stuff over there um, to Britain, whether Congress was going to say yes or no kind of thing. So it worked out. They said yes. Um, in the end, we loaned out around $49 billion, uh, to around 40 different countries. And just um, uh, kind of a, a little heads up of America getting involved in the war, in August uh, 14th of 1941, um, we this is granted this is before pearl harbor uh the united states and britain had like a special meeting and we pledged support to britain sorry for that little delay there for a second anyhow um so and we also came up with this plan for basically what was going to happen with post-war europe so this is august 14th 1941 pearl harbor hasn't even happened yet so we're already kind of making plans that we are going to get involved so um, also during this time, the U.S. and Japan kind of started to have like um, some tension and a bit of a fallout with the relationships. We stopped selling them goods, including scrap metal and also oil shipments. So this is going to kind of set the stage for Pearl Harbor. And um, so kind of building on that, the Japanese started to mobilize their fleet in the Pacific. Now, I am going to go over just a little bit of the Pacific, just Pearl Harbor. Um, I have a totally separate podcast that will be going over um, everything with island hopping and uh, dropping the atomic bomb. So that's somewhere else. But anyhow, the Japanese, they're getting ready to make their move in the Pacific, meaning they're going to go after Pearl Harbor. So they kind of thought that if they had crippled the American Navy at Pearl Harbor, then it could, you know, kind of slow down America, allow Japan to take over all of Asia, and then America would be back on their feet, but then Japan could just focus all of their might on us and then just kind of kick our butts. At least that was their plan. And the guy who was kind of in charge of this um, was Admiral Irsoroku Yamamoto. And I apologize for my um, terrible pronunciation, but anyhow, he's in charge of Pearl Harbor. So, Shortly after 7 a.m. on December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, a radar operator at Pearl Harbor noticed a pretty large blip 
on the radar. And radar was pretty early back then, tech-wise, so we weren't really sure. And so he radioed in Pearl Harbor, and he said, he said, hey, uh, there's something up going on. And there was only one guy who was really on duty at the base to make the decision. He said, oh, that's just some American warplanes. Don't worry about it. Well, they should have worried about it. Because after that, two waves of surprise attacks uh, came in, and these, are from, uh, these were planes from aircraft carriers. Um, in total, they left behind 2,403 people dead, 188 destroyed planes, and eight damaged or destroyed battleships. Uh, the USS Arizona was probably the most famous. There's a, a memorial to it now, and uh, we'll look at pictures of that in class. Um, also, just a little side note here of uh, one of the heroes of Pearl Harbor, Doris Miller. He was the first African-American to be awarded the Navy Cross. Uh, he was just a uh, cook during this time, and he you know, went and manned an anti-aircraft gun and shot down several uh, planes from, uh, from the Japanese. So, but this, this Pearl Harbor attack... Um, you know, in Hawaii, just it stunned the American people. Uh, and FDR called it a date which will live in infamy. And infamy is uh, kind of a way of saying evil fame. And Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war on Japan. And so he said, hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbound determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. And December 11th, Germany and Italy also declared war on the United States, so now we are officially in World War II. And now we got to get ready to fight it. <laughs> so the United States, we were, we were in the Great Depression. We were not ready for war. So uh, we had to mobilize the country. So we instituted the Selective Training and Service Act, which you hopefully remember that one from the past because that is a requirement for all males age 21 to 36 to register for mandatory military service, also known as a draft. Um, and... Of the people that registered for the draft, some of them were then selected, and um, they started to serve within the military of the United States. Um, even though there was a draft, many people joined just out of patriotism. Uh, we saw an, a spending boost, $2 billion at the start of the year, um, and $10 billion by the end for the war effort. And 16 million men, American men um, and women also, we'll talk about uh, women um, serving. Soldiers, sailors, and aviators participated in the war. And the 16 million were called GIs, which is a abbreviation for government issues. So whenever you see those GI Joe, it's government issue Joe, which doesn't quite have the same ring to it. All right, so like I said, a lot of different people helped out. We'll talk about how uh, women participated here in just a second. But first, um, people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds fought during World War II. 300,000 Mexican-Americans served, 25,000 Native Americans served, um, and a special group of Native Americans, which was 400 Navajos, came up with a secret code that was based on their language. And they were like called the Wind Talkers, and they would um, supply you know, secret coded information to another Navajo um, a Native American in another group, and they would pass information, and then they would decipher it for their commanding officers. So that was kind of cool. Um, almost a million African Americans joined the war, um, initially starting out in support roles, kind of like Doris Miller, uh, but later they did get into their own specialized units, and eventually um, there was integration of the armed forces in uh, late 1944, towards the end of the war. Um, as I mentioned earlier, women involved with the war. 
350,000 women had volunteered. Um, basically, they served in all areas except for combat. So clerks, typists, airfield control tower operators, mechanics, photographers, drivers, um, pilots. Um, they would ferry planes from location to location. They towed um, practice targets for anti-aircraft gunners to get practice. Um, WASPs, Women Air Force Service Pilots, um, were like the main um, force for, as far as women in, in, uh, for, for flying groups and so forth. So um, now at this time that America is mobilizing stuff, the bombings um, in Europe had really affected production um, for Britain. Uh, and the Soviet Union for that. So it was really up to the United States to kind of like step up their production. So we put together this thing called the WPB, or War Production Board. And it gave them a ton of power to kind of control the American industry. So it halted production of hundreds of consumer goods. Um, so it's like, look, we're not building stuff for the average consumer. We're putting priority on defense production. So we need to build planes. We need to build tanks and jeeps and stuff. And FDR had already had a lot of control over just industries in general and the economy through all of his New Deal problems. So uh, New Deal programs, not problems. Um, so it really wasn't too difficult for him to extend a lot of his power. So... Um, and with all these uh, businesses moving forward towards war production, um, a lot of consumer goods stopped, including the automobile industry, which was completely suspended um, for the duration of the war. So it's like, look, we're just doing war stuff now. Um, so now part of uh, <laughs> the war production board, um, they're managing all these different business controls and management and so forth we start to see the building of ships because we need to produce goods and carry troops and just war materials in general. So we see these things called liberty ships. So Henry J. Kaiser, he used mass production techniques to build ships extra fast. So normally it would take to build a cargo ship 200 days. He got it down to 40 days, and these Liberty ships are just rolling off the line, able to um, take all this production. Now, continuing with that production, by 1944, American production levels were more than double all of the Axis powers combined. So Japan, Italy, and Germany, you combine all the stuff they're producing, times it by two, and you basically got what America is producing. We were the, like, war horse for, Amer like, for the war. We could produce everything. We had produced 300,000-some airplanes, 80,000 landing craft, 100,000 tanks and armored vehicles in general. Uh, the main American tank was the Sherman, just a little side note for you. 5,600 merchant ships, 2,600 of them were Liberty ships, 6 million weapons, rifles, machine guns, and so on, and 41 billion rounds of ammunition. So when it came to production, we won the war. All right, and, you know, government basically said, look, we will spend whatever it takes. Um, and based on all those things we produced, I'd say we lived up to that. Um, we went from $8.9 billion a year in spending in 1939. Now, granted, that was before the war. Um, 
America's involvement to $95.2 billion a year in 1945. In total, we spent around $321 billion. That is 10 times as much of all the money that we spent on World War I. And this money, 41% of it came from higher taxes, um, but the rest we borrowed from uh, mostly you know, banks, private investors, but mostly the public. And we borrowed it through war bonds, where the government would give money to the government. The government gives them a piece of paper and says, hey, thanks so much for this money. How about this? You hold on to this piece of paper. We'll pay you back that money you gave us in 10 years. I'm making this up. And if you wait 20 years, we'll pay you double that amount. And that's the appreciation value of it. So, um, so we're spending all this money, and I know it's hard to believe, but we kind of went into debt. So the national debt went from $43 billion in 1940, before the war, to $259 billion in 1945. So, um, yeah, we spent a lot of money. And also, with building all of this, you know, all these different things and costing money and so forth, we did start to see shortages um, For example, the metal that would normally go for zippers and typewriters, well, that went into making guns, so consumer products suffered. Rubber for bike tires went into tires for army trucks, so that affected us. Nylon stockings were turned into parachutes, and people also um, rationed food during this time. And um, so it's, I don't know if there's necessarily a shortage of food, but the food that would normally go to civilians is now going to the army, and I'll talk about those victory gardens in just a second. Um, so, no, I guess I can go a little out of order. This, If you're following along the PowerPoints, just a little bit. So uh, these victory gardens are um, were gardens that people would grow at home so that the food supply on farms could go to the troops. So a victory garden, definition time, a home vegetable garden planted to add to the home food supply and replace farm produce that was sent to feed the American soldiers. So... Um, Basically, a third of the nation's fresh vegetables came from this, uh, from these little gardens. So, now, and I'm just backtracking just a shade here um, on the PowerPoint. It's one slide, but anyhow. Um, so, the Americans that were not fighting, um, what did they do with their free time? So, sixty, sixty um, percent uh, of them uh, went to go see movies. Um, and these movies and music during this time, they featured a lot of patriotic themes and kind of supported the war and encouraged Americans to buy victory bonds and just, you know, so it's like, oh, I'm relaxing. But they're still kind of pushing you to help out with the war effort and so forth. And people would read magazines and books as well, and you would also see the same kind of advertisements for the war, support the troops and so forth. And we're not going to go too in-depth with America fighting over in Europe, because hopefully you kind of have gone through a lot of that. Um, I will talk about D-Day and those kind of things here in just a little bit, Um, but I do want to talk about um, the Doolittle Raids real quick, and this was just just because it happened right after Pearl Harbor. So America, we wanted to fight back after we got hit, and we, even if it was only symbolic in nature, we wanted to hit them. Um, hit the Japanese, that is. So um, the Doolittle Raids was that that kind of hit them back. And this was in April of 1942, April 18th, actually. And it was given the name Doolittle Raids after Lieutenant Colonel James H. Doolittle. And 
His plan was to load up some bombers and launch them from an aircraft carrier and attack Japan. Now, bombers aren't meant to take off of aircraft carriers, so there was a lot of uh, modding that went on. So the Japanese citizens, they saw these planes and they thought, oh, these are Japanese planes, and they waved at them and cheered them on, and then we started bombing them. So um, we bombed our targets and got out of there best we could. Fifteen of the planes landed in Japanese-occupied China uh, and did make it to friendly uh, territory. One landed in the Soviet Union and was interned. Eight were captured and four were executed. uh, um, Sorry, these are troops, not planes. Uh, But um, And then the Japanese attacked uh, midway as retaliation. But like I said... um, you know, a lot of this stuff, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit of it now. We'll get more into it when we get into um, the Pacific Theater and so forth. All right, I am going to pause there a little bit. I'm going to talk about Midway Island when I come back, but I just want to uh, kind of pause it here. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to try to keep this at 20 minutes. So we'll be back in a second.